Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, this is All Things Tudor, and I'm Deb Hunter. Today, we have one of All Things Tudor's very first supporters, Siobhan Clark, who was one of my guests on the first YouTube we did for the group about a year ago, I guess it was. So it's an absolute treat to have you back. How are you today? Oh, very well. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Well, Let's get right to it. You have a new book called Gloriana, Elizabeth One and the Art of Queenship. Let's talk about that. But first, could you tell our listeners a little about your absolutely stellar career? Yes, indeed. I'm a guide lecturer for Historic Royal Palaces. I've worked there for 20 years, mainly at Hampton Court Palace. And I also lecture to various groups around the country. I've lectured for the Smithsonian and the Art Society over here in the UK, which is kind of like the equivalent of the Smithsonian. Um, I've been on television and radio and I've written some books. So my first book was uh, The Great Alison Weir, Tudor Christmas. And then I was approached by a different publisher to do a book on the Tudors, a full-scale, um, actually a very large coffee table-sized book, beautifully illustrated, covering the whole dynasty from the Wars of the Roses right up to the Union of the Crowns. And I invited a colleague who is an art historian to work with me on that book. Which so we did that. That was called The Tudors, The Crown, The Dynasty, The Golden Age. And we're very proud of it, actually. It's a particularly beautiful. And then we were asked by the History Press if we wanted to do something else. And we suggested the art of Henry VIII. So we did King and Collector, Henry VIII and the Art of Kingship. And... Of course, there's been many biographies of Henry VIII and many of his daughter Elizabeth, but we wanted to take a fresh approach and to do it through art. Also mindful that a lot of people, that they're really interested in the Tudors, but they might not know that much about the art. And we thought that it would be a really good gateway into understanding the lives of Henry and Elizabeth and also a very nice accessible way for people to understand the art of the period and its importance. So we did King Collector in 2021, that was published in 2021, and then we went straight into Elizabeth I and the Art of Queenship and that one was published this year. So the, the two, they kind of go together, really. If you like one, you'll be interested in the other. So one on Henry and then one on Elizabeth. They're like little biographies, but using the art, the iconic portraits of each monarch. And in Henry's case, it's more than portraits, it's tapestries as well, iconic artworks. Then, so Elizabeth is the latest book that's come out. And I guess that's what I'm here to talk about today. 
Well, you're getting rave reviews. So can you tell us a few things about your book? What does the book aim to answer? So, as I've said, it's a gateway to understanding Elizabeth and her image and her cult, the cult of Gloriana, which people have heard of but might not necessarily have delved deeper into that and its importance in her queenship. So, for example, Elizabeth, the, the main problem that she has to overcome on becoming queen is the fact that she is a woman. And to simplify it, she does it through essentially saying, I'm not like other women, I'm different. This is an age in which it's unnatural for a woman to have authority over men. It's, it's very unnatural. So she needs to be different. She identifies with the Virgin Mary. She sets up her image as a virgin goddess and actually starts to look like a deity later on with the makeup and the jewels and the gowns, and she looks like something from another world. And the cult surrounding her isn't just paintings, but it also involves literature and music. And all the courtiers of the day, all the men surrounding her, those famous Elizabethans, there are just so many of them. In literature, you've got Shakespeare and John Donne and got Raleigh and Drake, the, the great explorers. You've got courtiers like Dudley and Essex and Hatton. And then the great statesmen like Cecil and Walsingham, she was very lucky. She had really talented men surrounding her. And this all becomes part of the cult of Gloriana, the way the Queen becomes a muse for artists and is celebrated and set up as a figure for everyone to adore. So what we've done is we've looked at all the portraits and obviously we can't cover everything, so we've picked out what we think are the most iconic images and put them in the context of her life. So we've researched all the portraits, mindful of how each one can tell her story. And then that then led on to a wider exploration of the Golden Age. And we also looked at prominent courtiers surrounding her and how they too used art. That is so intriguing, just knowing that you put so much work and dedication into this. Where did your research for this take you? Well, what I could say is that it did just take us into this wider exploration. You know, you start off looking at Elizabeth and then you start looking at the people surrounding her. And sometimes there are surprises along the way. Well, it was a surprise for me, not really being an art historian. It was my colleague who brought the art expert into the project. But for me, it was things like finding out about how Robert Dudley wasn't such a great patron, the greatest collector in England, and he owned 200 paintings, which is a st staggering amount at the time, that he was interested in using art for his own image and to promote himself, and how it could be used, actually, and to promote the idea of himself as a future possible husband for the Queen. So that was one of the surprises for me. And then I think just being impressed with Elizabeth, anyone who's ever written about her, I think, has researched it from the historians that I've spoken to have come away admiring her because of, of what she achieved. She was a very exceptional woman. She really, truly was. And I know I come from a corporate background and the way women are treated today, even though 
we're looking for equality and everything, it is still not there. And to think that a woman 500 years ago was able to make herself a successful queen, it's still fascinating. It intrigues us. We want to know more about her. What about your understanding of her cult, the cult that surrounded her? Well, it was important for the reasons I mentioned at the beginning, that she is seen to be different from other women. And also don't forget that there were other queens at that time who were not being very successful, most notably her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots. And then her sister, her sister Mary, was seen probably unfairly. Her reign has been generally thought to be unsuccessful. And a lot of the problems with these two queen regnants came about because of their choice of husband. Elizabeth learned from that and made the decision not to marry, which is, in itself was incredibly surprising. She was the first monarch in 500 years who didn't even try to produce an heir. And what something like that, which would normally be seen as a great failure, she turns it round into a success story by saying, you know, I did it, I'm doing this for the love of my people because I'm married to England, I'm making this sacrifice, I'm sacrificing husband and children for my people. In actual fact, it probably wasn't really a sacrifice because Elizabeth was married to her job. Queenship was a career for Elizabeth and the real reason for not marrying was undoubtedly to do with the idea that it might bring some erosion of her power. There could be other factors as well, of course, fear of childbirth, events from her childhood. There's a lot of stuff going on there. But in the end, she made the choice and it was what she wanted to be the Virgin Queen. And the people that surround her are all part of this cult, this idea, and everyone in the end sort of buys into it, really, celebrating her as a goddess. Even when she's in her 60s, they play this game of courtly love, still showing adoration for the queen, telling her she's the most beautiful, etc., etc. And And this goes on. But it's all kind of a courtly game that everyone's buying into. And it's not all about vanity. One of the reasons, for example, that Elizabeth is painted as though she never ages and is told constantly by her courtiers that she's still a great beauty, is that people don't want to think about a time when the Queen will die. And so there's this idea that she's going to go on forever. By the time she did die in 1603, nobody could remember a time before Elizabeth. She had lived to the age of 70 when life expectancy was around about 40. They'd been Elizabethans for so long that it must have been quite frightening what's going to happen when the Queen dies, especially as the succession had not been clearly stated. Yes, Robert Cecil was working in the background to ensure the succession of King James, James of Scotland, but it was all in the background. It couldn't be talked about publicly because Elizabeth wouldn't allow it. So it must have been quite frightening for people and they must have felt very unsettled. Today, we can't remember a time when we were not Elizabethan. So history is repeating itself, but not as scary, obviously, because Elizabeth II was a constitutional monarch. It was very different. And there was no question about the succession. She had a son ready to succeed her. So a lot more scary in 1603, but still the feeling of a great loss and just, yeah, and sadness that 
the Elizabethan age comes to an end. Absolutely. The arts flourished. Of course, England was at peace. It became a world power. I do want to touch back on something you mentioned. You mentioned her sister, who we now know as Mary I. How does Elizabeth compare two previous kings and queens in her image of a successful monarchy? Well, she learned a lot from the Tudors who went before her. Actually, all the Tudors were quite good, perhaps with the exception of Mary I. But certainly the, the men, Henry VII and Henry VIII, were very good at propaganda. Even Henry VII, who was a miser and didn't like spending money, he knew that magnificence was important and he was prepared to spend on palaces and tapestries. He understood that the illusion of power was as important as power and wealth itself. And then her father, of course, Henry VIII, spent more on palaces and tapestries and art than any king had ever done and had built the most magnificent court that England had ever seen. So she was, would I would imagine, was had looking back to what her father had done and how art can be used, you know, having a successful image, producing that image. Elizabeth's image was produced and distributed more than any female in history, apart from the Virgin Mary, up until that time. So it was a very deliberate distribution of her image. People wanted to have her portrait. It shows your loyalty to the crown, and there was a big market for it. So to give you an example, if an artist's studio, if they had taken commissions from people, painted portraits, and then the patron hadn't paid, they were painting on oak boards, they've got that already, then the easiest thing for them to do would be to turn it into a portrait of the Queen, because if they know if they have a picture of Elizabeth, they can sell it. People want her image. So the Elizabethans actually knew what she looked like, or rather they knew the image that she wanted them to see. So just so to make sure I'm answering your question, I, I think that she would have been influenced by her father and her grandfather, maybe not so much by her sister, although Mary did have a colourful court. She loved rich clothing. Mary has been misunderstood, I think, whenever she's portrayed as a joyless bigot. I think that's unfair. She had a penchant for dice and gambling. She wasn't a joy. There was lots of things that she enjoyed. The saddest thing about Mary was her desperation to have a child and not being able to, and her marriage went wrong. And then, of course, the religious problems. It's it's the burning of 300 Protestants. That's the main thing, the main problem with Mary's queenship, this counter-reformation that wasn't really, really working. And then the loss of Calais. So by the time she Mary came to the throne to great acclaim, she was popular. But by the time she died, I think that popularity had gone, really. Certainly, Elizabeth was welcomed to the throne. This young Protestant queen is seen as, and after all the burnings, she's seen as the Protestant saviour of England. You're absolutely right. I look at them as the old and the new, and unfortunately, Mary gets cast as the old version. And like you said, the young, popular princess becomes queen, and the entire country falls in love with her. And it's very unfortunate for Mary, isn't it? Yes, and I think she has been 
unfairly, I think, cast as someone who was just a bigot. I don't think that is fair. She was very brave. She was doing her best and she believed that she was trying to save people from hell. You know, she was trying to save their souls. So what's important to remember with regard to those awful burnings is that the Marian authorities gave everyone a chance to walk away if they would only accept the Catholic religion. They could walk away. So these people who are being burned in a way, they're actually choosing, they're choosing to die as martyrs. They don't have to die, whereas modern people today would be pragmatic and say what needs to be said. But in those days, religion was everything. The soul was everything. People were prepared to die for their religion. It's as simple as that. I've heard that before, so thank you for bringing that up. I want to talk a little more about Elizabeth I. What are some of the common symbols used in Elizabethan portraits? Sure. So the Elizabethans love to use symbols. And for Elizabeth herself, the most common are things like pearls, symbolizing chastity, the crown and scepter you'll often see, obviously symbolizing monarchy, a globe representing imperial ambitions, particularly in the Armada portrait, Now, I think that's a portrait that most people will be able to visualise, where you see Elizabeth in this huge dress with the stormy seas behind one shoulder, the stormy seas that wrecked the Armada. And you see the Spanish ships on the other side. And it represents Elizabeth leading her people away from the stormy seas of Catholicism. And it's a portrait all about triumph. And yeah, she's there. She's in in her colours of black and white. There's a huge ruff that's covered in pearls. There's all the kind of regular symbols that one would expect to find. But then you've got this globe with her beautiful white hands are very much on display. And one of her hands is resting on the globe and her fingers are in particular are resting in the Americas, in Virginia. A colony named after the Queen, the year before the Spanish Armada, the first English child had been born in Virginia. They called her Virginia Dare. And what this is saying is that Elizabeth and her England now have ambitions beyond Europe. They have imperial ambitions. So this is very important. So wherever you see the globe, that's kind of what it's saying. Other things to look out for are perhaps the sword of state. When you see the queen with the sword, it represents justice. And it can also mean there's another portrait, the ermine portrait, where she actually has an olive branch in one hand and her other hand rests near a sword. And what that's saying is that Elizabeth prefers peace, but she's willing to fight if necessary. So it's, it's really important that a monarch is strong, not just fair, but, but strong too and willing to be a warrior. Other symbols are the pelican and the phoenix. The pelican was a bird in mythology who pecked its chest to feed the blood to its young. And this reminds us of Elizabeth's love for her people and even her will, she's saying she would be willing to die for her people. Also reminds us that she's head of the Church of England, the mother of, of the church, the mother of her people. A phoenix is a mythological bird that goes through a resurrection. It's a symbol of endurance and eternal life. Also, there can only be one phoenix at any time, so it's unique. You can see immediately why she would wish to identify 
with the phoenix. Another little animal which you can see particularly in the ermine portrait of Elizabeth is this uh, rather cute little ermine creature, you know, a real ermine shown in the portrait, not coat, but a little animal. And according to legend, it would rather die than soil. It's pure coat. So therefore, the ermine stands for purity. And of course, the ermine fur was restricted to royalty and the very high nobility. So it, that would be something that she would definitely wish to identify with. So there's quite a few different things that you can look out for. And in certain portraits, the Queen might be carrying an accessory. So for example, in the Darnley portrait, in the National Portrait Gallery, she's carrying a very beautiful fan, a very expensive fan with lots of colourful feathers. And it's very much in the foreground, you know, this fan, you can't miss it. It's likely that whoever commissioned the portrait, and we don't know who commissioned it, but whoever commissioned it probably gave her that fan. So it was something that was started by Robert Dudley, the idea of giving the Queen an expensive gift and then commissioning a portrait in which she's holding the gift. And therefore, those in the know will understand when they look at the painting, they make that association between the Queen and the the patron. It's showing a close relationship that this patron happens to have with the Queen. Watch out for symbols that represent the Virgin Mary. So, for example, the rose had been associated with the Virgin Mary and Elizabeth uses it a lot. And then, of course, there's the Tudor rose as well. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all Things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, Select the option to join the group and, of course, answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. Did she use any other examples of portraits for political ends? Yeah, definitely. In fact, to some extent, they all were quite political. There's lots of examples. The coronation portrait itself of a young Elizabeth of course, is political. In the coronation portrait, you're really looking at robes. You see very little of Elizabeth except her face and hands. You're looking at ornate robes. Then there's the Hamden portrait of a young Elizabeth, which was done for the royal marriage market. That was a portrait that would appeal to possible suitors throughout the courts of Europe. But what really comes to my mind, oh, and of course, the Armada portrait, which I mentioned earlier, is, is very political. But a good example that comes to my mind is the Sieve portrait, which because that was commissioned for political reasons. It was commissioned by Sir Christopher Hatton, who was Lord Chancellor and one of her favourites. And the Sieve portrait shows Elizabeth in black and black, well, essentially the colours of black and white, with uh, carrying a humble sieve 
This idea goes back to the ancient Romans, Vestal Virgins. One of these Vestal Virgins proved her virginity by carrying water in a sieve without spilling a drop. So it's a story that Elizabethans would be familiar with. And at that time, they were, they were interested in reading these stories from ancient Rome, would read them in Latin, Greek, or in the case of this story, because it's based on Plutarch's tales, Elizabeth probably read it in Italian. Anyway, the point is, there is this story about sieve that educated people would know. And Elizabeth is painted in the guise of this goddess with a sieve, it's showing her virginity, emphasising it, emphasising her identity as a maiden. And Christopher Hatton has commissioned this portrait right at the time when Elizabeth is flirting with Francois, Duke of Anjou. And she does seem to have been quite taken with Anjou and that her English courtiers were really jealous. Anjou was the only foreign prince who actually came to court her. So she met him and she did actually find him quite charming and it caused a lot of jealousy. So what Hatton is doing by commissioning this portrait is emphasising her virginity to show his jealous disapproval of Francois, Duke of Anjou. And he's actually in the painting, uh, Hatton. You can see him in the background of, of the painting. So there's no mistaking who the patron is in this case. She was truly the master or the mistress of the game, wasn't she? Very much so. And enjoying it. She enjoyed using, mixing diplomacy with romance. You know, it's just, it was something that she really liked to do. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot, Siobhan, and ask you, what is your favourite portrait of Elizabeth? Well, I've got two. I mean, for a long time, I would have said the Darnley portrait. But since doing the book... I have to say that I am fascinated by the rainbow portrait. It's so visually stunning. It hangs at Hatfield House. People will, if they look it up and have a look, they most likely will have seen it. It's very famous and it's a very beautiful portrait. She's wearing this orange silk cloak patterned with eyes and ears, a low-cut dress. She has her hair down in the style of a virgin. Her face is completely unlined, even though she was 67 when it was painted, but she's shown with this mask of perpetual youth. But what's so interesting about this painting is all the signs and symbols, and it's very much about her secret service. The man who commissioned it was most likely Robert Cecil. So he's the son of the older William Cecil, who, who had died before the painting was done. So Robert Cecil has kind of taken over from his father to become her chief minister. But it was the Cecils and Francis Walsingham who had worked for so many years to keep Elizabeth safe by running this intelligence network to spy on the Catholic underground. And they used methods that we would recognise today, like secret codes, moles and uh, ciphers and all this sort of thing. And it worked. You know, they devoted their lives, actually, particularly Walsingham, devoted his whole life to keeping Elizabeth safe. And it worked. You know, she should survive when she could have very easily been assassinated. There was a real threat to her life. So this is definitely part of this portrait. That's what referred to with the, the eyes and the ears. So it makes us think of the Secret Service, the English Secret Service, but also we're also intended to think that the Queen sees and hears everything. 
So also in the portrait, you can see a snake on one sleeve holding a heart. Now, the snake is often associated with wisdom and shrewd judgment. And the fact that this one is holding a heart could mean that the queen doesn't let her heart control her head. She uses her head rather than her heart. And that's, I think it's fair to say that that's true because she did love Robert Dudley. There's no doubt about that. But she felt that she couldn't marry him and she didn't let her heart rule. You compare it again, if we go back and compare it with her cousin, Mary Stuart. Mary made disastrous marriages, which made mistakes that Elizabeth would never make. And it's called the Rainbow Portrait because the Queen is holding a rainbow out of which all the colour has been drained, strangely, and yet the rest of the painting is really vibrant. So it seems likely that it was the rainbow was never painted in a colourful way. It's deliberately drained of colour because it's meant to show that the Queen has, has drained the, the rainbow. Her power is so strong. A rainbow was employed, of course, as a message of hope during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, yeah, I think now that probably is my favourite painting for its beauty and for the secrets that it holds. Some of the signs and symbols in this painting, we still haven't decoded. It still has its secrets intact. We don't even know for sure who painted it. There's just various theories about who may have done it, whether it was Marcus Gearhart's or Jean de Critz. We don't know. Even Hilliard has even been suggested. And Isaac Oliver, we can't know beyond a doubt who exactly painted it. But the fact that it's hanging at Hatfield House and has been recorded as being in the Cecil family means that you know, we can be pretty sure that it was Robert Cecil who commissioned it and it would make perfect sense. And you're absolutely right about it. I was fortunate enough to see it when it was at Hampton Court Palace in 2019 before COVID. Ah, yes. They had it and the back down cloth, and it was mesmerizing. I, I thought they were going to have to come in and ask me to leave the room because everything was closing. It was just so intense knowing you were standing in front of her portrait with possibly the fabric that had been used for that gown. And for a Tudor person, it was just like a dream come true. I know. So exciting to think that that piece of fabric, when it was identified, because we thought we'd lost everything. And then to find something that was most likely worn by Elizabeth. Yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah. I mean, it cannot be the exact gown because Blanche Parry had died way before that portrait was commissioned. And Blanche had given the fabric to the church. So I think what it is is that it was just a very similar gown and Hatfield House very kindly loaned it to us when we put the back to altar cloth on display at Hampton Court. But it is not the, the exact same gown that's in the portrait. It's just a very similar gown. Oh, thank you for that. The work in that was just exquisite. And even to this day, you could see the tiny stitches on the the little creatures that were on there, the little animals and things. It was just so intense to get to view that. Let's get back to portraits. You brought up Hilliard. How did he rise to fame and how important was his work? Massively important. Miniatures were known in England in the reign of Henry VIII 
about the middle of Henry's reign, but they were not English. You know, all the great artists in Henry's reign were foreigners. I mean, obviously, Hans Holbein and the Horenbutts arrived, and they they were miniaturists. But there was no great English artist at the time. England is very much a cultural backwater. I mean, some Italians don't even want to come and work in England. They describe the English as beasts and, and say they definitely don't want to come to that backwater. But what Hilliard does is he becomes the first great English artist and is celebrated not just in England, but throughout Europe because of his exceptional work as a miniaturist. And we don't even know how he became so accomplished. He was born in Exeter, in Devon. His father and grandfather were goldsmiths. Now, that was a really good profession. They earned more than artists. Paintings were still a low-cost item. You know, most artists didn't earn a lot of money. Hans Holbein had only earned £30 a year. And Hilliard would probably have made more money if he'd remained a goldsmith, but he obviously felt drawn to paintings. He possibly came across the idea of miniatures during his training as a goldsmith because miniatures were enclosed in the most beautiful frames, gold settings studded with jewels. Miniatures were intended as something very intimate to be held close to the body. Often they were given as gifts to lovers, the royalty they might be sent to prospective bridegrooms or, or prospective brides. Anyway, the point is they were in these beautiful settings. That might be how he got the idea that he wanted to do it. Now, we don't know how he became such an accomplished artist. It's a mystery. He claimed to have taught himself, but art historians are sceptical of that, given the exceptional quality of his work. So we just don't know. Levina Tierlink has been suggested as someone who may have taught him, but we just don't know. We just don't have evidence, really. Another suggestion is John Betts the Elder. He had been instructed by Holbein or Lucas de Heer. So there's a the couple of ideas, but we just don't have the evidence. Anyway, um, Hilliard wrote a book called The Art of Limning. Now, that's what they called miniature painting. They called it limning. And in that book, he himself looks back to 1571, and he was 24 years old, and he says, when I first came in Her Highness's presence to draw. So he's been introduced to the Queen at a very young age. The introduction came through... Robert Dudley, the great art collector, the man who is closest to the Queen. So what a connection to have. Hilliard's former master had acted as a banker to Dudley. So that is the connection. And he's very lucky. Dudley has told the Queen about this talented young man. It's a fortunate connection. And Hilliard had been brought before the Queen and starts painting her. And he carries on painting her for 32 years. And he's still creating images of her up until her death in 1603. He becomes obviously very popular due to his sheer skill, you know, like Holbein, he's a genius. And he does earn quite good money, but he always lives beyond his means. He dresses beyond his means. He dresses as a courtier. He had a large family to feed and he ends up struggling financially, despite the fact that he was successful. But what Hilliard has done is he's finally shown that England can produce a great artist. He's built a formidable reputation in Europe 
And he's left us 200 miniatures which survive today, the best ones being in the V&A. That, that would be the place to go if you want to see them. Well, thank you for that. Where can we see portraits and miniatures of Elizabeth? So again, the V&A, but also my first suggestion to people would actually be the National Portrait Gallery. It has been closed for some time, but it's due to open in spring 2023. If you go to the National Portrait Gallery, you can see the Darnley portrait. You can see the Armada portrait of Elizabeth. They normally have either the Pelican or the Phoenix portrait on display. They normally have the Ditchley portrait on display. So you're seeing really important works of the Queen. But you also get to see Robert Dudley, Raleigh, Walter Raleigh. You get to see Mary Queen of Scotch. You get to see Walsingham and Cecil. So you get to look into the faces of the whole court. There's a whole gallery devoted to Tudor portraits. So that would be my first stop. For the miniatures, you really want to go to the V&A. Well, thank you for that. And let's go back to your book. Where can we find your book? Where can we buy it? Okay, so it is on Amazon and it will be available to order in the US January, which actually doesn't seem so far away now. <laughs> so I believe you can it can be pre-ordered. It doesn't have to be Amazon. I think there are plenty of other booksellers as well. That's just an easy one that people can look up if they want to have a look at it. But it can be ordered, yes. We're very fortunate in all things Tudors because Waterstones will let us order British books and they'll send them to us in North America. So that works well. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes, Waterstones have got it. You can order it from Waterstones. You may be able to get it now and they might not even, I don't know if, what, if they would charge for shipping. There's a company that don't charge. I think they're called... Book Depository, that's it. But I've been told that Book Depository don't charge for shipping, so it would be possible to order it from there not and not have to wait till January. Well, it can be pre-ordered and people can give it away as a gift here. So there are many creative ways to handle this. I want to thank you for being my guest today. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, you're very welcome. It's lovely to speak to you as well. And I always enjoy talking about Elizabeth. I have to say that I wasn't a huge fan of Elizabeth before I started work on this book. I suppose being Scots, I'd always grown up trying to think kindly of Mary, Queen of Scots, and certainly sympathetically. Of course, Elizabeth is the great rival to Mary. But having really researched it all, you can't get away from the fact that Elizabeth was just an exceptional, exceptional woman. And I personally think that she got her great intelligence from her mother, Anne Boleyn. And then the great irony is, you know, people. I do these tours at Hampton Court and people always telling people about Henry's need for a son, the long-awaited son. And then the, the great irony is that in the end... His son died and his true heir was Elizabeth, the daughter of the woman he had executed and had actually given him the most brilliant successor. If Elizabeth had been a boy, Anne would have been safe. She wouldn't have been executed. And 
that child would have no doubt been a great king, just as Elizabeth was a great queen. And it's possible that the Tudors would have endured because obviously a male would have married and, and had children. The Tudors might even still be with us. History would have been very different if Elizabeth had been born a boy. But she wasn't. She was a girl. And I think that she did exceptionally well. As I said right at the beginning, it was the biggest obstacle that she faced, her gender. And she did exceptionally well. She coped with the fact that she was a mere woman. And it didn't stop her from becoming one of the greatest, if not the greatest monarchs that we've ever had in England. So well put. So I think I'll probably end on this. Well Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you to the listeners who make the magic happen. Please listen, enjoy, and subscribe to All Things Tudor and have a good day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.